0: Anybody been doing their own chapter or their own section titles? Anybody been working on that? I just encourage you to do that as an ongoing thing. My my, uh, title for this, my NIV says, The Greatest in the Kingdom of Heaven. Ah, boring. Um, My title is The Calm Before the Storm. See, because that's that's what's happening. We're on our way to Jerusalem, and the storm is sort of waiting at Jerusalem, and we've got that 10-day to two-week walk. Then Jesus is on his way. So, uh, yeah, I want you guys to do that now. I want you to do it. Um, I have a quote here from somebody. I don't know. I stole this from somebody. It said, uh, They longed for a kingdom where they would be princes. Jesus meant a kingdom where all men and women would be princes and princesses. So this is the calm before the storm. Um, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, it's not a very good question, but at least they're using the term kingdom of heaven. This is the first time they've used that term. So, it, you know, they're, they're making progress. It's slow. It's still the wrong question, but uh, at least it's a better question. You see, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And they will argue about this all the way to Jerusalem. Uh, it comes up again and again and again. At one point, they're arguing about it, and Jesus will turn to them and say, what were you arguing about? And they won't tell him because that's what they were arguing about. Uh, you know, do you know when the argument ends? It ends in John 13 when he washes their feet. They never argued about it again. He, he, he you know, Jesus humiliates himself. He shows them what real greatness is. And what I think, in fact, I, in fact, I, wrote, I think this is in the song. I wrote a song about called uh, Basing the Towel. He gives up on words because words haven't been working and so he enacts this really powerful parable and he washes their feet. so but for now they're on their way to Jerusalem and they're still, they're still uh, well they they're in, they're, in Caper- they're in Capernaum, but they' they're, they're going to be on their way to Jerusalem. Um, so they're still they're still arguing about it. He called a little child and had him stand among them. And I like to imagine this is one of Peter's children because they're in, they're in Capernaum. Tradition says he had at least one daughter, so we don't know, but we don't know for sure. And he said, I tell you the truth, that's his very important way of saying, I'm about to say something very important. Listen, please. Um, Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, That's the new reality. That's the kingdom. What does old orthodoxy say? Old orthodoxy says it's based on your accomplishments and it's based on your power. New New reality, right? We got old orthodoxy, Ju- Judaism, and we got the new reality. What's the new reality? Childlikeness, letting go of power. You know, a child. You know, define a child any way you want to. A child uh, doesn't have really anything to commend themselves. No accomplishments. Uh, and also, children. If you've had them, you know this is true. Children don't mind receiving things they don't deserve. Right? <laughs> a little kid. He's got no problem with that and that's key if you're gonna be a you know You've got to stop this this nonsense about deserving it. You know, trust me You don't want what you deserve, right? And so that's part of the That's part of the new reality So therefore whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest upside-down kingdom Uh, and whoever becomes like a little child uh, welcomes a little child like this in my name Welcomes me. And my note and again, I stole this from somebody this is, this is an elegant argument against greatness. It's an elegant argument against greatness. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And they're in, if, if they're in Capernaum, if, if they're in Peter's house, they're right next to the Sea of Galilee. And the Romans actually did this to a group of zealots. They took them out in the middle of the lake, they tied millstones around their necks, and they threw them in. So this is a very real uh, image. Um, but what I noticed, and this, <laughs> this was a new idea for me, he doesn't say what's going to happen to the people. Notice, he says, it would be better. So having a millstone, he doesn't say, if you offend one of these, I'm going to tie a millstone around. No, 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 no. He says, it would be better if that happened to you. So he's not telling you what's going to happen if you offend one of the little ones, but it's, it's worse than being thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around. So just leave that to your imagination, how bad that might be. Woe to the world, There's a woe, Oive, Hebrew. A woe to the world because of these things that cause uh, people to sin. Such things must come. It's a fallen world, right? But woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell." Uh, and notice here, at that point, he's, he's referring to, to heaven as life. He doesn't say kingdom. He's talking about heaven, you know. It, he calls that life. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. And I, 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 this feels like the lo, one of Matthew's logia to me. I think of the catchword association as little ones, but it doesn't have to be that way. Just to my ear, this is what it sounds like. This is a lo, part of this logia collection. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you the truth, they're angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And I've got a bunch of Old Testament references next to that. They probably have something to do with angel. angels. <clears throat> Verse 12 is his, his invitation to engage. What do you think? Okay, what do you think? And now he's going to tell um, uh, a parable. He hasn't told a parable since chapter 13. So here comes, uh, here comes a parable. If, if a man owns a hundred sheep, which I hear is an average-sized flock, if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one who wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. Um, in the same way, but I think this is one of those uh, rabbinic Kalvahomer. How much more? You know, I think it's the same kind of thing. It's the same sort of rabbinic argument. How much more, or in the same way, your Father in Heaven is not willing that, in, uh, that any one of these little ones should be lost. The, the value is their lostness. And He's just revealing the heart of His Father. Uh, it doesn't make total sense to me to leave the 99 and go save the 9. That to me doesn't make complete sense. But to God's heart it makes perfect sense because the, the, what the, makes the sheep valuable is its, lo- its lostness. And he's happier about the, the one who comes back, or the one that he retrieves than the 99 that didn't ever stray. Of course, all of us have strayed. So, um, um, And again, see, that this feels a little disjointed to me. Uh, that's why I think this, we may be in the, the Logia uh, section. This is his last block of, of, of teaching, isn't it? Isn't this four? No, is this five? Um, I think this is five. Um, my note says, hardness of heart will be an underlying theme in the following chapters. Um, the, the ultimate objective is restoration, uh, but stubborn uh, disbelieving is a reality. Um, he's going to talk about this church, basically church, church discipline. But hardness of heart is the theme that holds all these things together. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. Did you know in Judaism it's a It's a sin. To publicly embarrass somebody? I didn't know that. I don't have a reference for it, but I read that in one of the commentaries. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. Winning your brother over, restoration is always the point of discipline. Always. Even the final point of discipline when you ask people not to come back, the hope is still restoration. Restoration is always the point. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if, you, if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established in the testimony of two witnesses. That's Deuteronomy. If he refuses to listen, then tell it to the gathering. That's that word ecclesia again. And um, I actually just, when I was preparing for today, I saw another article with, with a fairly forceful uh, argument to say, it, ecclesia is really, church is not really a good translation for ecclesia, gathering. Is a good is a good uh, a good uh, translation. In in uh, in some documents, uh, it, ecclesia is, is used for a synagogue. So I'm not saying it doesn't apply to the church. But in in Matthew's to Matthew's uh, first hearers, um, they certainly wouldn't have thought of church. They would have thought of synagogue or thought of gathering. So just know or congregation. Congregation's another another idea. Ecclesia is when we come together. And and churches church is, church is okay, but Gathering congregation is is more, uh, I think, goes along with Matthew's world a little better. Um, If he refuses to listen, then take it to the church, take it to the congregation. And if he refuses to listen even to the congregation, to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And that word for pagan is really the word for, does anybody have anything different than pagan? Gentile. Gentile, That's literally what, that's what the Greek is. Uh, I don't know why. NIV did pagan. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And again, I think this has to do with, it's, he, he's encouraging us to loose, you know, to unlock things. So if, I'll tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. In, in other words, that's not a good thing, right? You've give, been given the keys to the kingdom to unlock things. So the idea is that you want to loose your brother your, you know, your brother that sinned against you who you're trying to restore you're trying to do everything you can do to loose him to unlock him or her um, but the unfortunate uh, unfortunately the truth is there are, are some people who won't listen to you or to two or three or to uh, the church when they're confronted with uh, what they've done wrong and that's just a sad reality of it uh, Here's another unique statement. Uh, Again, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father. Uh, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I with them. Uh, This this is a statement from the uh, the sayings of the Father, uh, the sayings of the Fathers. Um, When ten people sit together and occupy themselves with the Torah, the Shekinah abides among them. So the rabbi said, what, ten people are together? That's kind of a good thing. God's there. Jesus goes, "Hey, if two or three are together, I'm, I'm there." Jesus, the presence of Jesus, which is the Son of God, the presence of God is there with them. Okay, here we're gonna go. I, I kind of rushed to get to this point because this is this is a, par- a parable of Hesed, you know, our favorite, our favorite thing, all of our favorite theme. Some of us, some of us, more favorite than others. <laughs> some of us here have paid the ultimate price for Hesed. Um, then peter came to jesus and asked lord how many times shall i forgive my brother when he sins against me now that flows together with that other statement right because we're talking about restoring and bound, binding and loosing and so peter you can tell that peter's been thinking about this but listen to listen to what his response is up to seven times now for peter that's extravagant Right? He's trying to impress Jesus with how nice a person he is. So how many times? You know how many times the Talmud says you're bound to forgive somebody? Three times. Right. So in Judaism, three times is being generous and gracious. So Peter's really up in the ante, right? Seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy times seven. Now that doesn't mean what's that, 148? That doesn't mean that what it Four hundred ninety thank you i I'm no good at math is that, yeah four hundred ninety times that, that Jesus is not saying okay you, you can forgive exactly 490 times Mo, uh, numbers in Judaism in the, in the Old Testament is basically have an emotional value so the emotional value of this is more times than you can imagine I mean that's if you know if you're going to do a paraphrase so yeah uh, seven times uh, uh, seventy times seven is yeah, more than you can possibly imagine. And Jesus is going to, now he's going to st- construct a parable based on this, on the emotionality of numbers. This is so cool, y'all. Um, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, and here we go. He jumps into this parable without any uh, introduction, which is how he always uh, uh, jumps into parables. My note says Jesus loves uh, parables about two people. He loves comparing two people, and that's what this is going to be about. Uh, therefore the kingdom of heaven <coughs> is like a king who wanted se- to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now 10,000 talents, uh, according to the commentaries, that's 60 million days wages. That's more than you can, you know, it's more than you and I can imagine and it's more than this guy could ever pay back, right? Right? So when Jesus said this is his uh, this is analogous to Seventy times seven. So this guy owns, owes more, um, uh, it says, more than all the total something in ancient Egypt. I can't read my writing, but it's a lot. You know, 60 million days wages. Um, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, this isn't the Jewish world. This is what Gentiles do. Jews, Jews don't do this. But pagans, Gentiles, will sell someone and their family uh, into slavery to pay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay everything back. Yeah, right, yeah. The servant's master took pity on him. Pity is hesed. That's another term for hesed. The the servant's master had had, uh, exercised hesed and canceled the debt and let him go. Okay, when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything, not a second chance. I mean he was asking for a second chance, right? The prodigal son asked for a second chance. God is not the God of of second chances. He's the God of 70 times seven more chances. You know, more chances than you can ever imagine, right? So that's why this is Hesed. But when you are shown Hesed, part of the understanding of the word is if you are shown it's reciprocal. If you are shown Hesed, you it's up to you to return Hesed. And, and this, this uh, parable teaches that, that aspect of the word. You know, if someone shows you hesed and then you don't show it back, you're, you know, you're a, I can't even say what you are, you're a bad person. You're a very bad person. So, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage, so that's 100 days' work. So we got one debt of 60 million days' work and one debt of, of 100 days' work. He grabbed him, and began to choke and pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Uh, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Um, my note is Jesus loves comparing two, people, two people's response to the same situation. Good Samaritan is another one. He loves to see you've got the same situation. now. How do different people respond? But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. So he is not reciprocating. <laughs> When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy? Hesed, yeah. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers until he should pay back uh, what he owed. See, so that's that is a, a wonderful... Uh, example, wonderful parable of Hesed, um, and here I, this is something I, I wrote. This is from the book. When Peter, who is as yet unaware of the weight of his own sin, uh, the poss- the impossible amount of his debt, when Peter offers to forgive only seven times, he has become the ungrateful slave of the parable. That makes sense. Yeah. When Peter, okay, so this is all linked to Peter's. Wow! Can I, should I forgive seven times? You know, like my mother would say every day. I heard my mother say, "Don't break your arm, patting yourself on the back." So, Peter, don't break your arm, patting yourself on the back. When Peter, who is as yet unaware of the weight of his sin, um, the impossible amount of his debt, when Peter offers to forgive only seven times, he's become the ungrateful slave of the parable. So, when P- when Peter hears Jesus tell this parable, what do you think Peter's going to do? He's going to realize that seven was was not a good number. That <laughs> maybe seventy times seven is you know more in, in line. Um, yeah. This is how the did I get to the end of that? Yeah, yeah. This is how the, the heavenly Father will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. That ties together the whole section with uh, church with with discipline and and uh, and forgiveness. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, what that? What is that? That's the formula that closes the block. So that's four. That's the end of four, not the end of five. So we got one more block of teaching to come. Um, that's Matthew's formula. When Jesus had finished saying all these uh, these things, um, he left Galilee. Now imagine this: he's leaving Galilee. When he comes back, he's going to come back. He'll be resurrected. Isn't that cool? You know, Matthew is the gospel of Galilee. Matthew, in, Ma- in Matthew, Jesus, uh, the, the angel in the tomb says, tell him he's going to meet you back in Galilee. So the next time he's in Galilee, he's going to be raised from the dead. He's going to be uh, the resurrected uh, Lord. Um. <clears throat> so we had a section on forgiveness, and now uh, we're going to be drawn into this argument about divorce. And We've already talked about this some. Um, Uh, He went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan, which is where John was baptizing in the first place. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So this is his last time in ministry before he gets to Jerusalem. You know, And again, it's so important to be aware of the flow of the ministry, the emotionality of this. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, so we, we know it's a test, right? So we know they're asking him a question of orthodoxy and they're, they're not hoping, they're, they're wondering uh, if he's gonna give the orthodox answer. That's the test, right? And this is a big debate amongst the rabbis, I uh, mean, the, the, the later rabbis. Remember, Ra- uh, Matthew is in the middle of what I call the e- emerging rabbinic movement. There's no such thing now as, as an ordained rabbi. That, that's, that will come. Now, we have, we have well-known teachers, mainly Shammai and Hillel, and they're referred to as princes. You, you know, even the word, what rabbi means isn't really that clear in Jesus' day. The, rab, the rabbinic movement is post-70. There are rabbis, don't get me wrong, but it, there, there's no such thing as an ordained rabbi in Jesus' day. That's, that's coming. That's coming, right? So the two schools that we have are Hillel, we've talked about Hillel, and Shammai. Hillel is the good guy. We all like Hillel. He was the the carpenter. He was the very gentle, very sweet guy who gives people very, very uh, uh, gentle, calm answers. Uh, Shammai is kind of the stick in the mud, right? Nobody likes Shammai. And and Jesus never sides with Shammai. He always sides with with Hillel, except on divorce. This is the one place where Jesus uh, sides with uh, Shammai. Hillel said, because the issue is this, it all boils down to this, In Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, uh, basically that's where the provision is made for divorce. You know, Jesus will say, Moses gave you, you know, the provision for divorce. And it all hinges on one word, and the, and the, the word is, uh, it's, it's translated different ways, and it's only in terms of what the wife does, it's very, you know, biased towards, towards the men. Um, it, the question is, if, if, if the woman does something, and I can't think of the word, um, begins with the R. I do I have to look up? You're going to make me look up Generating dinner, dinner 24. Um, um, if the woman does something, with somebody looking I can hear the pages turning. This is what happens after a week long, a week of teaching reprehensible maybe that's the word can you see it if, if she does something indecent, so yeah. indecent okay there we go now we're getting there yeah it's it's it, but it, you see it's just the woman right right okay but there's a there's an R word that I'm looking for that I can't think of hmm Oh Deuteronomy 24 1 through 4 yeah so anyway the, so it all it all turns on what is indecent or what is, whatever, the other word I can't think of that's a much better word um, that begins with an R. Just write that down. Uh, <laughs> so the question is, how do you define that? Uh, Hillel defined indecent as anything you decide. Like, and, and this is in the, in the Talmud, uh, if you don't like the breakfast that she makes for you, and that's an extreme example, but he's saying, if there's, not, if there's something you don't like about your wife... You hand her that getim, that bill of divorcement, and say, hit the road. That's Hillel, which is a little out of character. Shammai is the one that said, only for marital unfaithfulness, indecent. See, it all hangs on how you define that word. Shammai says, no, that's only for uh, adultery. That's only for marital unfaithfulness, right? Okay, and so Jesus sides with with, uh, Shammai when it comes uh, to that. My note here says, later rabbis declared that when, when adultery is committed in a marriage, the rabbis decreed that you had to get a divorce. Yeah. They declared that adultery uh, 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 divorce was a requirement uh, in the case of an unfaithful spout, spouse, uh, reasoning that adultery had already dissolved the marriage. That's what the rabbis taught, which is actually pretty cool, if you ask me. I mean, I hate, God hates divorce. Divorce is wrong, but the provision is made in the law of Moses. Yeah, but interesting, when, when they ask him about divorce, Jesus doesn't talk about divorce. He talks about what marriage is. He's not going to be drawn into this discussion, at least not at, at first. So just let's see, let me read it and see if any of this makes uh, sense to you. <clears throat> um, yeah, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? See, that, that's Hillel. Any and every reason. Haven't you read? Now that is a very rabbinic way to re- begin a statement. Have you not read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. Now the, 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 the fact that men and women belong together, it's, it's even it's implied, Jesus, I think Jesus is saying, it's, it's even implied in sort of the, the music of their name. Man and woman. In Hebrew, it's Ish and Isha. That, sound, that sounds like they belong together. Ish and Isha. They belong together. Okay, So, he, he, he um, hold on. Yeah, in the beginning, he made them Ish and Isha and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united. Now, this is what I want you to do. I want you to circle every word that has to do with unity in these next couple of verses, and that's the first one. And once you do it, you'll understand. How Jesus defines marriage okay for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one therefore what the Lord has joined together let man not separate how does Jesus define marriage it's oneness it's this oneness that God creates pure and simple okay uh, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife uh, a, a certificate of divorce and send her away? And this, this is, very, again, this is a very rabbinic um, argument they're having. Um, it, another one of the reasons why we think that Matthew was written by a Christian scribe because he gets all this stuff, um, the, the, the tool, the rabbinic tool, I've got it written in Hebrew but I can't pronounce it, it but it says, uh, it, it's, why is it said that's the phrase that the rabbis would use. Uh, they use it when, uh, when another passage in Scripture seems to say something else. So in, in, the, in the, their parlance, you know, if this is true then why is it said, this other thing? And so that's what they're doing. Why then, it, it, you know, why is it said then? That Moses commanded a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. They, they don't want to talk about marriage. They want to talk about divorce, right? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wife because your hearts were hard. That's clear enough. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman, commits adultery. And like I said before, that is a logical conclusion, not a prescription for beating up divorced people. Because restoration is always the point. It's always the point. Is, is divorce wrong? Yes. I mean, d- divorced people know that as much as anybody does. Uh, is it the impartable sin? No. Uh, the provision is made, and Jesus acknowledges that, but he says it's not supposed to be that way. And we all know it's not supposed to be that way. Okay. Um, the disciples said to, him, said to them, well, 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 let me say this first. When Jesus says this, it's, it sounds unpo- impossible, right? The disciples go, yikes, if that's what marriage is all about, then maybe we shouldn't get married, okay? It, maybe it shouldn't get married. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Why is it adultery? Because the original marriage was never really dissolved. Why? Because God did it. They made them one. Man can do whatever, you can stand on your head. Man can do whatever he wants to do. He can't dissolve what God has made one. Of course, the very real question, and it's a tremendously slippery slope, and I don't want to talk about it, but uh, the real question remains, it, it does, does God has God always put two people together? Do, do people not make mistakes in come in, when they come together? Obviously, the answer is yes. Uh, but at the same time, I would say, if you stood before uh, a pastor and made your vows, then you have to... Be very, you know, very careful about, you know, dissolving that marriage. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Except I will say, if you ever hear... (laughs) If you ever hear that Mike Card has gotten divorced, if you ever hear that, and I'm not saying, I mean, we have fought like cats and dogs for 30 years, but... um, If you ever hear that Mike Card is divorced, you can come to me if I get remarried and you can call me an adulterer. Because let me tell you, I'm here to testify that God has put my wife and I together. I'll say that right now. And I would say that, you know, in, when, in the middle of the bad, the bad parts. And there's been bad, she would say, there's, she'd roll her eyes and say, yeah. <laughs> so I'll quote, I'll quote Ruth Graham. Do you believe in divorce? No. Murder? Yes. But not divorce. Okay. <clears> okay. <throat> um, So if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. See, that's their logical conclusion. Jesus replied, (coughs) I always quote this verse to all the single guys I disciple. I say, you know, I think God has really given me a word for you, and I I quote this (laughs) verse. Not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it's been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others are made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. And and Matthew is the only gospel that has that statement. Matthew who cares so much about the kingdom. But, I mean, let's think about it. Jesus has already said uh, faith before family, kingdom before family, right? Let me bury my father. No, you follow me. The the, the requirements and the demands of family come second. I mean, I, I know folks on the family, people wouldn't like this idea. But faith comes first. Kingdom comes first. I'll die for the kingdom. Now here's, I hope this isn't me backflipping out of the issue, but I would like to say it's better for my wife and children that I put the kingdom first, right? It's better for them that I put, better for my wife that I put Jesus first. So I will say that. So I don't, you don't, don't you want to think I'm a wacko? No. Okay. Now that I find this totally interesting, and again, if you read big blocks, you'll see this. If you read two verses at a time, you won't see stuff like this. Uh, twice in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is holding children, twice. Um, and this is the second time. And I don't think it's a coincidence that after he has this long, drawn-out discussion about divorce, he wants to hold little children. I think there's a connection, right? Jesus, who has himself renounced married life, right? Dis- despite what the, all the uh, History Channel specials say, Jesus, who has renounced marital life and doesn't have, you know, doesn't have any biological children of his own and has the kind of heart, I mean, obviously loves children. And he's just had this talk with these hard-hearted Pharisees who, who, would, who would divorce their wife if they burned the toast in the morning. He, I think he wants to hold these children as much as they want to be held by him. I really do think there's a connection. So then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, a very rabbinic thing, that's what rabbis do, a barokah, a blessing, and to pray for them. And the blessing had a, had a prophetic uh, character to it. That's why you wanted the, the rabbi to bless your, your, your child. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me, do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I mean, how, how long it was, was it, ago was it when he was in Peter's house showing a child as the example of the kingdom? And uh, apparently that, that, uh, that didn't land, that lesson didn't land. When he, placed his hands on, uh, when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. So he does, he does his thing. Um, I think Mark is the only gospel that actually gives the detail that he's holding them. He picks them up in his arms and he holds them, which he doesn't have to do. All he has to do is put his hands on them. Okay. Here's another person I really love. I love this guy, the rich young ruler. Um, and now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now that's the wrong question, right? It's the wrong question. But he is the old orthodoxy. Here, you know, here is our here is our thing. Here's old orthodoxy and new reality. This man is not a bad man. He's a good man. But he's just come from the old orthodoxy. He's a good man. When when Mark says Jesus looks at him and loves him. Okay? So this is not a man who's trying to trick Jesus or you know, draw him into some issue. This is a, a, a genuinely good man. And it's a, it's a genuine question. It's just a wrong question. And we'll find out why. Why do you ask me about, <coughs> about what is good? Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. We're done. Okay? He answered his question. That's, I think, it's the only time he ever actually answers somebody's question. He gives them an answer, and we're sort of done. Um,. And my suspicion is this whole business about good, um, you know, teacher, what, must, what good thing must I do? Why do you ask me about good? There's only one. I, I just wonder if maybe the word rabbi got used in there someplace. And this, this is also, this has to do with the meaning of the word rabbi, because rabbi mean, means good one. Rav means good or great. And uh, I, I think maybe instead of teacher, he might have called him rabbi, and it just got translated teacher, because it, it also means teacher. I just think something about the the, 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 uh, the fact that rabbi hasn't come together as a term yet might, might have been, um, yeah. Because there's and there's another version of this where, where Jesus says, why do you call me good? And I think that's definitely, he's called him rabbi. And Jesus doesn't want him to be, he don't, doesn't want to be called good or great unless the guy understands the nature of his goodness or greatness. Because people call him rabbi, sometimes it doesn't bother him. Okay, anyway. And that maybe that's totally wrong, so anyway, there it is. There's only one who's good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Now that's the old orthodoxy answer, right? Jesus has given him an answer right out of his world, and it was, it was going fine up till then. But then he has to say, "Which ones? Yeah. You had to say that. So Jesus gives five. He comes back with five. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and then he pulls in Leviticus 19, and love your neighbor as yourself, okay? Uh, a quick, kind of quick sketch. Um, and once again, remember, in the old orthodoxy, because of the Pharisees, the, uh, they thought the command, commandments were actually keepable, right? The Pharisees had had kind of messed with the commandments so that they were keepable, Right? So honor the Sabbath became a hundred commandments. Don't spit. Well, I cannot not spit. I can do that. Don't blow out a candle. I cannot do that. Okay. They made the commandments keepable. And when this guy says, all these I have kept, you know, in church, we all groan when he says that because we think this is this arrogant guy. This is not an arrogant guy. Paul at one point in Philippians 3.6 says he was blameless, right? This, is, this could be Paul. According to the law, I was blameless. I kept them, right? This is the world of the old orthodoxy. So all these I've kept, the young man said, what, <coughs> what, still, <coughs> what still do I lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell, go sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Yikes, okay? Not a word, not a word. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth, and this is the point, Mark ten twenty one, where Jesus watches him walk away, and Jesus loves him. See this—he's not a jerk. Um, but here's what happens: this is and this is this was Bill Lane's idea. I think this is an elegant, beautiful idea. Um, Jesus engages this man on his own level, has this discussion, kind of within the confines of the old orthodoxy. But when he when he keeps getting pushed. Jesus gives him this, this requirement, okay? If it's, a, if it's about doing, then do this. Give all your money away, and, you know, give it to the poor. And then if you can do that, then you come follow me. But Jesus' question reveals, and this is the beautiful part, Jesus' question reveals the, the man hadn't kept all the commandments. He'd broken the very first one. What does the first commandment say? Have no gods before me. This guy had made money. He's God. Isn't that beautiful? So, so he hadn't kept all the commandments. And what a beautiful, gentle way for Jesus to point out the fact, you, you know, you really haven't kept them because you won't let go of your money. Money's your God. But uh, there's a tradition in the church, and it's a fairly ancient tradition, that this man actually came back, that he did that. He gave his money away to the poor, and he came back and followed Jesus. And I hope, I hope that tradition is true. And as he's walking away, Jesus says to the disciples, I tell you the truth, amen, this is very important, you better listen, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that in itself is a very peculiar thing to say, because in Judaism, if you're, if you're rich, what does that mean? That means you've been blessed, okay? So for Jesus to say it's it's really hard for people who have obviously been blessed by God because they're rich. Now, if you're sick, what does that mean? That you're, God's cursed you, that you've sinned, right? That's the value system that's based on the, the equation of the Torah. If you're good, God will bless you. If you're bad, God will punish you. That's the, that's the logical conclusion based on Torah for, for people who didn't understand that the Torah was the beginning of a journey towards intimacy, right? So Jesus watched this rich guy walk away, and in terms of the new, or the new uh, um, old orthodoxy, new reality, in terms of the new reality, it really is hard for rich people to enter the kingdom. You know, the poor are flocking to Jesus' message, right? They got no problem with his message, but the rich have a problem with his message. But imagine how the disciples hear that. Yikes. When they say, who then can be saved? Uh, I, I translate that it sounds like no one can be saved, right? If the, if the blessed people can't get in the kingdom, yikes, we're in big trouble because we're poor, okay? Um, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel, which is the biggest animal any of them can think of. They didn't know about elephants. Uh, I can tell you, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus makes it very the point very obtuse, um, and, and you know all of the commentaries that say there was this gate in Jerusalem that was called the Eye of the Needle," and he's really the eye, that gate didn't exist until medieval times. So Jesus is not um, Thank you so much. Uh, Jesus is not talking about that gate because it didn't exist yet, okay? Ah, thank you. You will not lose your reward, my little sister. <laughs> Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and he said with man this is impossible but with God all things are possible. See God's business is doing God's business is making the impossible possible. Okay? It's impossible for any of us to go to to enter the kingdom, right? Why is it impossible? Because we are we're we're sinful, right? Habakkuk says God can't even look at us. And yet God so so here's the impossibility. Here's the impossibility us getting into the kingdom because we're fallen and thoroughly sinful. Here's another impossibility. How about this? God dying. The cross. The cross is another impossibility. So what does God do? He takes two impossibilities and puts them together and makes possible the kingdom, makes possible our being with him, because our being with God is his deepest desire, right? The thing that God wants most. Have you ever asked? You know, in a frustrated moment, have you ever asked God, what is it that you want, right? I can tell you exactly what he wants, and I'll be dogmatic about this. In fact, I'll take a bullet for this. The deepest desire of God is to be with you. That's what he wants. That's what the whole, I will be a reductionist all day. That's what the whole Bible is about, is about God wanting to be with us. Now, I can't explain it. You know, there are theological explanations, but none of them make any sense. Think about it. what was the garden for? Let's start in Genesis. What was the garden for? So we could be together, right? Beautiful garden, right? Um, then, so we fall. So what's the law for? It's so we can be together. Leviticus 26:12. the promise, the reward for keeping the law. God says, I'll walk with you and be your God, and you'll be my people. That's the deepest desire of God. Then he gives us the tabernacle. What's that for? So God can be with us, right? He can, everyone else is living in a tent. He'll live in a tent, too. His tent's a little nicer than their tent, has gold walls, but it's still a tent. still got badger skins, right? That's what the, 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 the temple's for, right? God, who wants to be with us, is dwelling among, amongst his people. What's, when, when he comes to us in, in his incarnation, what's his name? Emmanuel, God with us, okay? What are the last words from his lips, practically? Behold, I am with you always. Do you see how this all holds together? That's what the cross was for. It will, it's what it explains the cross. It explains the incarnation. See, it holds the whole Bible together. And the climax of the Bible in Revelation is when John hears a loud voice from the, the throne that says, at last the dwelling of God is with men and women, and he will live with them, right? They will be his people, and he will be their God. And the next verse says, and he will wipe every tear away. So this intimacy that we can't imagine. I can imagine a lot. I can't imagine that kind of intimacy. And that's the end of this journey. The journey that begins with Torah obedience. If you're good, I'll bless you. If you're bad, I'll punish you. That's where the journey begins. And it all going towards intimacy the whole time, it ends up with us being married to God. I mean, try that on for size. And the ladies can deal with that better than the guys can. That's still kind of a stretch, right? But God loves you so much he wants to be married to you. And, you know, I say those words, and I still have no idea what it means, really. <clears throat> okay, sorry, that was a little excursus, but an important excursus. Um, yeah, who then can be saved? And I, I like much better. It sounds like nobody can be saved. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible. With God all things are possible. Peter, at this point, clears his throat. Clearly, he, he goes, ahem, 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 ahem we've left everything to follow you and you know that's true right he's not boasting his house is up in capernaum and he's not there anymore his presence is gone matthew left more than any of them okay we've left everything to follow you what then will will there be for us that's a good question not a great question but it's a good question jesus said to them i tell you the truth at the renewal or at the regeneration and that's a different term. Titus 3.5 uses this term. And Isaiah 65 and 66 are about this idea, the idea of the re- everything being regenerated or everything being renewed. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his throne in heavenly glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or child or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And that, that is actually the, the, the uh, statement that opened this block. That's Matthew's bookends. Um, that, that introduced the statement about the, the parable about the workers, right? That's what that was about, that the first or last and the last. So that theme has kind of been going through uh, this, whole, uh, this whole passage. We got time. Okay, let's push on, because here's another parable of Hesed. <coughs> I will put it to you that most of Jesus' her- parables are trying to teach Hesed: Prodigal Son, Workers in the Vineyard, you know the one we the the one we just saw, uh, Good Samaritan. Most of them are about Hesed. Okay, um, and this is a unique parable. This is only in Matthew. <coughs> I'm just. <coughs> Okay, my note says, once again, a story of disparate wages and how two people respond to the same situation. That, that just seemed to attract his mind. He likes giving a situation and seeing how two people respond. That's, that's just part of his mind. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. Now, this is an image that the, that, um, the Galileans... Galilee is basically... Uh, a bunch of farms that are owned by rich people in Judea that they that people in Galilee work on, okay, um, tenant farmers. That's most of the farming in Galilee. Okay, so they, they they get this. Okay, he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into the vineyard. And what you need to know is the work day is from six in the morning till six at night. We're kind of gradually moving back to that, right? So you work from six in the morning till six at night. And so the first guys get hired at six, okay? The second guys get hired at nine. The next one get hired at noon. The next one get hired at three. And the very last group, they get hired at five, okay? One out. they got one hour left, okay? So that's the math, six to six. So these, uh, these uh, very ambitious kind of old orthodoxy people who want to work for it, they're, <coughs> they're waiting, And and according to the Deuteronomy you had to pay a day labor every day I mean that was in the law because they're so poor they need their money every day okay so he agreed to give him a denarius uh, and he says let's go about the third hour that's nine about the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing he told them you also go work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right he doesn't say a denarius so they went he went out again about the sixth hour, that's noon, and the ninth hour, that's three, uh, and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, that's five, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing, okay? So the last group, these aren't, your good, these aren't good guys. These are a bunch of bums, okay? He goes in the marketplace, and there's a bunch of bums hanging, and that's us. We're the bums, okay? These are the new reality people who, who, to the old orthodoxy people, look like bums. Okay? No offense. Why, why are you standing here all day long doing nothing? Uh, because no one's hired us, they say. Okay. He said to them, go also and work in my vineyard. Okay? Um, doing work. Um, yeah, that, uh, the Deuteronomy 24.14, that's where the law that says you've got to pay de- the day laborer, you know, uh, his day's wages. You also go work in my vineyard. Um, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them for their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. There's that formula, see? The first or last and the last or first. So the first, uh, the last one first, the first one. Okay. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each one received a denarius. Wow, they work an hour and they get a day's... Wages, what does that sound like? Sounds like hesed to me. Okay? So when those who were hired first, they expected to receive much more. We're going to cash in. This is awesome, right? <clears throat> but each of them received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Uh, these men who, who uh, were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day? See, they hate the fact that this guy is showing Hesed, and a lot of times when Hesed appears, there's someone who hates it. The older brother in the peril of the prodigal son, he hates that the father shows Hesed. Jonah hates that. He, you know, why did he not preach to the Ninevites? He said, "I knew you were going to forgive him. That's why I didn't preach to him. Okay, I knew that you were God of Hesed. I hate that about you. If you're an old Orthodoxy person, you don't like it. That's I've got a Pharisee right in my house." She hates that I've forgiven my, my uh, sinner, right? She hates that. And, uh, and the, honesty, the honest thing is you and I hate it too, you know? When we get a, you know, we, get a, uh, we want mercy when we get stopped by the cop, but when someone flashes past us, we want, we're old orthodoxy people, right, when it comes to that. <laughs> but he answered one of them, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. Okay? I want, to, I want to give the man who is hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? Okay? That's the parable. Let me read to you the exact same parables as the rabbi taught it. Okay? This comes from the Talmud. Same parable. Listen for the ending. Um, this is, and let me see where this comes from. I've got the rabbinic. Oh, this is Barakoth 2.5. This is from the Talmud, okay? A king had a vineyard for which he engaged many laborers, one of whom was especially apt and skillful. What did the king do? That's how rabbis teach, see? He took this laborer from his work and walked through the garden conversing with him. When the laborers came for their hire in the evening, the skillful laborer also appeared also appeared among them and received a full day's wages from the king. He's been walking around talking to the king all day. But he gets a full day's wages. The other laborers were angry at this and said, We have toiled the whole day while this man has worked but two hours. Why does the king give him the full hire, even as to us? The king said to them, Why are you angry? Here's the difference. Through his skill, he has done more in two hours than you have all day. So what's the point? It's, it's still old orthodoxy. It's getting the work done. It's the rich young ruler. What must I do? It's still based on that. See see what Jesus has done? He's taken this, this, uh, this icky parable about still working real hard, and he's turned it into a parable about hesed and about how gracious God is. Uh, and my, my ma- note says, only Matthew tells us this parable. Uh, perhaps it was, it was because it meant a lot to him. Because Matthew kind of came kind of late to the party, didn't he? Right? He kind of came kind of late to the party. So we we should probably stop there, shouldn't we? Uh, Okay, let's do one more then. Uh, Verse 17. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. There it is. That's important, right? We are on our way to Jerusalem. Um, This is where um, Luke takes 10 chapters. Matthew does it in a couple of chapters. Mark does it in three or four verses, this, this trip to Jerusalem. Now, <coughs> now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, okay, he, three times or four times he tells them on the way to Jerusalem, he's going to be killed. This is the third time, and this is the most detailed time. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law, they will condemn him to death. They will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And you know they don't hear that last part. When he says crucified, they stop listening. Right? If you, I will give you a candy bar if you'll clean your room. What do you hear? I'll give you a candy bar. Selective hearing, we call it. But when he says crucified, they stop. Um, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked him a favor. Do you know who this is? This is Salome. This is this is Mary's sister. Jesus and John are first cousins. How cool is that? Yeah, remember, John the Baptist is is um, his, his mother is a cousin of Mary's, right? Elizabeth. Uh, John, the writer of the gospel, John. John, the disciple, John. His mother is Salome, Mary's sister. So Jesus and John and John are all related to each other. I think that's pretty cool. <coughs> so this is Salome. How do I know this? Because of who's, who's, in the, who's who in the age of Jesus. This book I totally disagree with, but, it, but which is full of great information. Okay, so there it is. Uh, Giza Vermes, brilliant guy, all wrong conclusions. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, Jesus asked. Now we know that James and John came to him another time and said, "Uh, will you do for us anything we ask? And Jesus is not going to do that, you know. Okay, whatever I ask you, will you say yes, mommy? You know, that kind of thing. So what is it you want, he said? Uh, she said, uh, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now that sets, what, what is their mindset? Okay, so he just promised them they're going to sit on 12 thrones, right? So this is not totally unreasonable, okay? But what does this indicate about their expectations when they get to Jerusalem? They think this is, it's all going to happen. This is going to be awesome we we got a king, we're, we're hooked, we've hooked our wagon to a star, right? And Salome thinks it too, she, she thinks it too. Uh, and Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Okay. Yeah, do you really want them to be on my right and my left hand in a couple of days here? Because they won't be sitting on thrones, they'll be hanging on crosses, right? So mothers, be careful what you ask for, see, sometimes. And, 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 and Jesus says that, that place has already been uh, signed, or what's, what's the word he uses, um, Appointed. Uh, these places belong to those for whom I, uh, has been prepared by my Father. He means the, 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 the thrones. But I'll tell you what, the, the, the crosses on either side, those places have been appointed too. Right? When the, ter- the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. They are indignant because they didn't think about it first. Okay? <laughs> Jesus called them together. I mean, what has he done? He's put a little child in front of them. I mean, they have argued about this the whole time and they're going to go on arguing about it until he washes their feet, and then they will shut up. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. What's he doing? He's appealing to their pride as Jewish men. So what, are you going to be like Gentiles? You sound like a bunch of Gentiles to me. You know, that's kind of, that's my paraphrase. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise over authority. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your Servant, and it's doulos, slave. Servant is not a good translation. A servant has choices. A slave doesn't have choices, okay? You become a slave to Christ, you give up your choices. Philippians 2, 6 11, Jesus came in the form of a doulos, not servant. He came in the form of a slave. Very important. Someone has written a whole book about it that sold literally tens of copies all over uh, Franklin. <laughs> <coughs> And whoever wants to become first must be your slave. That's the, that's the motto of the kingdom. You want to be first, you've got to be last. If you're last, you're going to be first. It's an upside-down kingdom. If you want to be wise, embrace foolishness. If you want to be mature, you become a child. Okay, if, you want to be really, if you want to be free, you become a slave. That's the, new, that's the new reality. It makes no sense to the old orthodoxy, which you and I basically still think in. We think we don't. But we're still all orthodoxy places. I mean, I'll tell you, you, I'm telling myself too, you have no idea of the degree to which this man has turned the world upside down. We still can hardly grasp the degree to which he's turned this world upside down. Okay? Every now and then you get it, and it blows you away, but it, uh, it's incredible. <clears throat> so you don't know what you're asking. Uh, Jesus said to them, <coughs> can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And that's a consistent metaphor for suffering for Jesus. Uh, We can, they answered. And you know what? James and John, they're the first and the last to die. They're the bookends of the disciples. James is the first one to get martyred. And John lives until he's 100 years old. So this is the first and the last, right there talking to him. We can, they answered. Jesus says to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. You're going to suffer. But to sit at my right and left hand is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my father. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm 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 uh, backtracking. Sorry. Um, uh, James when James is martyred in Acts twelve one and two. If you want to write down a reference, that's when James gets gets killed. When the ter- ten heard about this, they were indignant. They were uh, with the two brothers. Jesus. Oh, gee. Sorry. I've already read all this. Um, yeah. What are you? A bunch of Gentiles? Okay. I'm I'm back now. And not not so with you. Yeah, I already read this. Um, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to, to, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. And that word for ransom is a technical word. It's the word lutron. It's the technical term for the price of a slave. Jesus refers to his death on the cross as a ransom. It's ransoming slaves. It's, it's buying you so that you're no longer a slave to the world. You're no longer a slave to sin. When we say Christos kurios, when we say Jesus is Lord, kurios means owner. When we say Jesus is Lord, we're also saying Jesus owns us. Why does he own us? Because he bought us. He bought us. Or he's about to buy us here in Matthew. Um, and to give his life, yeah, Lutron, a, a ransom for the many. Uh, One more thing and we'll be done done with 20. I mean, just a couple more verses. Let's do it. Uh, And, okay, for Mark, this is Bartimaeus, one person. What does Matthew do to his witnesses? He always doubles his witnesses. So for Matthew, it's two blind men. Are they conflicting with each other? No, they're complimenting each other. Matthew's not interested in Bartimaeus. Mark, he ramps his whole gospel up to to meet Bartimaeus. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, the gospel of Mark is all about Bartimaeus. He's the disciple Jesus has been looking for for three years. Matthew doesn't see it that way. He's not interested so much in these two guys. So as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, that's the last stop before Jerusalem, okay? This means Jesus is there, right? Uh, It's 15 miles uphill from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jericho is the oldest city in the world. So they're leaving Jericho. Now Luke is not interested in Bartimaeus at all. He's interested in Zacchaeus right? Jesus meets Zacchaeus on the way into Jericho. On the way out, he meets Bartimaeus. So a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, "Uh, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. If you ask for mercy, now Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. These guys aren't part of his plan, right? He's he's resolutely set his face for the cross. Uh, He doesn't have time for these two guys, But if you ask Jesus for mercy, whether you're part of the plan or not, you're always going to get it. That's my point. Have mercy on us. Have hesed. We don't deserve it, but we want you to give it to us anyway. The crowd rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder. Lord, uh, son of David, have mercy on us. And actually in in, in in Mark's account of Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And Mar, uh, Bartimaeus is the only person in the Gospel of Mark who calls Jesus by his name. He's the only person who calls Jesus Jesus in Mark. How cool is that? It's all about Bartimaeus. <laughs> Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked Bartimaeus that too. Um, Very politically incorrect. Very, very uh, insensitive to ask a blind person this, obviously. Uh, Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion. That's another word for hesed. Hesed is always something you do. Hesed is a verb, okay? Jesus had hesed. He showed them compassion, touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. And that's all Matthew does with that story. Mark does a lot more with that story. He's really interested in it. Okay, so it's time to stop. We've gone a little over time. But look, we made it to the triumphal entry, huh? Timing is of the Lord. Did you say that James's martyrdom was mentioned in Acts? Yeah. Do you, can you give me that? 12, 1, and 2. Okay, I just missed it. Yeah. Thank you. That's what my note said. I mean, I think, I think it's 12, 1, and 2, but he's, he's the first one. Moses, my brother. A couple times uh, you've said that that I think it's Peter has a lot of backing in the book of Mark. Like he he kind of has a lot of influence. The gospel of Mark is the gospel of Peter. I was just wondering what what leads you to say that or how do we know that? Uh, A a ton of church history. Eusebius, ton of church history. uh, Two or three references where the people, they say the people in the church come to Mark. And they say, because the gospel period is when the, the witnesses are dying and we need to write this down. So the church comes to Mark. And they say, write down Peter's testimony. And uh, Eusebius says when Peter heard about it, he didn't forbid him, but he didn't encourage it either. Peter was kind of indifferent that Mark would even write this down. That's one piece of evidence. You got a piece, also a piece of evidence in 1 Peter, where Peter refers to Mark as my son. So we know they're close, right? We know they're close. And in the 2 Peter, which is really his, his uh, will, right? Peter knows he's dying when he writes 2 Peter. He says this uh, interesting statement. He says, uh, and after I've gone, I've done everything possible to make sure that you'll be able to remember these things. And I think he's talking about what he and Mark are doing. After I'm gone, I've done everything possible to make sure you'll be able to remember these things. And so that, that's basically the, the evidence for Mark. But, but it's a very reliable tradition. And when you test that tradition, see, I'm not, I'm not just, I just don't accept tradition. You test that with Mark, man, Peter's fingerprints are all over Mark. This whole thing of believing before you see, which is so important to Peter and First Peter, that's, base, that's the basis of the gospel of Mark. So it's, 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 a, it's a good idea. I won't take a bullet for it. I won't take a bullet for the fact that Mark wrote Mark, because the Bible doesn't say he did. Okay. I'll take a bullet for Paul writing his letters, because the letters say, I, Paul. But I won't take a bullet for Matthew writing Matthew. It's tradition, but it's a very reliable tradition. Yeah. Do you think that the parable of the denarii and the workers is to show us that salvation is for all, whether someone worships the Lord and loves him for 90 years or a day or you know, like, well, well, salvation is or for someone everybody. Someone who's martyred okay. and someone who's not, but the kingdom yeah. of heaven is for all of us. Um, okay, let me say it this way, um, because that's a big. You know, there's kind of this growing heresy right now that you know there's no hell, and it, at the end God throws His hands up and says, "I love you all too much. Everybody come into heaven," and I, I hope I hope that's true, but there's nothing in the Bible that lets me say that. Uh, so I think the the denarius is this way. Um, the people who, who on their deathbed say, as, as they breathe their last, say, I believe, yeah, they get the whole, they get the whole, they get the whole kit and whole caboodle. Uh, you know, uh, they're they're going to get the same reward that Billy Graham gets. I think that's how it works because that's how hesed works. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, thief on, the thief on the cross just says, remember me. And Jesus says, okay, that's enough. You're in. I'll right. see you. I'll see you in paradise. And I, I don't know, is that what he was trying to say in that? Parable or? I don't. know. Well, I would. I would say what he's specifically doing in that parable is revealing what God is like. I don't think that parable is a is a state is a, is a theological statement about who gets in heaven, who doesn't. But it definitely has implications like that. that you're saying so. Does it teach that? Uh, eventually, it teaches that. I think if you extrapolate what it means. But what's that parable about? It's about what a what an incredible God we have. Yeah, and the fact that there are a lot of people who who don't like. The way he's incredible. Right? There are still old Orthodoxy people who think they can work for it. They want what they deserve. That's what all those the, the the day laborers are saying. We deserve this. And behind that is a God who knows you don't want what you deserve. You know, let me give you what you don't deserve. See? I mean, this that's why Hesed is such a big idea. Hesed really. For me, it's the gospel. It's a really cool way to bring all these ideas about the gospel together. Um, it's been posed to me that we believers, we take the Bible literally. Uh-huh. But why is it that we don't take literally uh, 18 uh, verses 7 through 9? What does that say? I don't, I don't have my Bible. Cutting your hand off yeah. your foot or your yeah, eye. Yeah. What what answer do I give as to why we don't take that literally? Yeah. Uh, Mark Strauss has a good good little discussion on this. Uh, um, I I can't reproduce it word for word. Um, This is how I approach it. Um, The the gouging the eye out and the cutting the hand off and all that stuff, that's hyperbole, right? So I take it literally as a hyperbole, right? Um, That's Jesus' over-the-top way of saying... It's, it's much better, you know, it's, it, you, you've got to, this is what sin does to you, and it would be much better if you just cut your hand off. Of course, we know that doesn't keep you from sinning anyway. I mean, people with no hand sin, you know, people who, get, you know, we can all got, gouge our eyes out, and it ain't going to work. Um, we're unfixable. Cutting our hands off doesn't fix it. We all know that. But that's Jesus' way of making a point. That's why this, this whole marriage thing, I say, what I say is he's making a point. It's not a prescription that... Okay, if you're divorced and you're married, you're an adulterer. That's not a prescription for that. He's making a point in a very hyperbolic way, and that's why when the disciples say the disciples get it when they say, "Wow, nobody should get married," because the way he's described sounds so over the top to them. They go, "Ye, you know, I can't do this. I don't want to get married." See, so I think I think that's it. It's hyperbole, but so so. But I'd like to say no. I, t- I take I try to take it literally, you know, because that's a slippery slope too. You know, you know, Bonhoeffer has a great... There's a great passage in The Cost of Discipleship where he takes some statement of Jesus and then two or three ways he shows how people cancel it out and make it say the exact opposite of what Jesus says. And those are people who, you know, don't take it literally. Yes, yeah. Michael, can you clarify um, chapter 19, verse 28, where it talks about the 12 thrones? Is that sure. a literal 12 thrones? I mean, because Judas... Is well, it is it symbolic for the well, twelve tribes? Or? No, I mean I think in Revelation we got twelve thrones, right? You know that, so we see those thrones in Revelation, yeah. So that, no, it's, it's twelve, and that's a special number. And when Judas, you know, leaves, he gets replaced. It's and, and that's I don't know why it's very important to me, but it's really it's really important to them that they got twelve. So, but how do they? You know how they get Matthias, Mattathias' His name? Mm-hmm. They 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 throw dice to get him which I think is really cool uh, because the, the, the Old Testament says that God is in the casting of the lot. So it's a spiritual thing, but at what elder or deacons meeting have you ever been at when anybody goes, okay, okay, you know, youth activity center. Okay, here we go. Ah, you know, huh? Oh, we have a question from Afghanistan right here. On the, Matthew eighteen chapter uh, verse twenty, you say when two or three. Yeah, yeah. Matthew, what about one? Why is it two? Yeah, I don't. I, I can't. I I, wonder about this. Yeah, yeah. I think when there's one, he's with us. I think the point he's making is, you know, the the Talmud says ten, right? And and Jesus is just saying, look, I'm I'm there with you guys. He's talking to two or three people at the moment, right? And he goes, I'm, gonna, I'm there with you. I don't think it's, it's not a math, again, it's not a mathematical prescription. He's making a point. And it can be, there There can be just two of you and I'll be there with you. And I think the implication is, yeah, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Yeah, if there's one person, he's there with you. Yeah, well, it's he's not doing math. You know, it's not doing math. He's making a point. So, yeah, I, I think the paraphrase is, you know, there could be just a very few of you together, and I'm there with you. That's, I think that's the point. Yeah. It's like he's not saying you've you got to forgive 490 times. It's not math. It's a point. He's making a point. Is it? Was it 490? Was that 70 times? Okay. Okay. On the, the 99 and him leaving them for the one that's The lost, sheep, yeah. Don't you think he kind of knows the 99 are secure in him? They're secure, sure. but the ones... Sure, that's implied. Yeah, sure, that's implied. But you've you got to go do the parable first. Don't immediately turn the parable into theology, right? Let the parable kind of do its thing. And, uh, and if you do that, you, you realize, wow, that's an, a pretty incredible shepherd. That's what you're supposed to think. You don't go, oh, well, no, he's not, not that incredible because we know about eternal security. And blah, blah, blah. Don't do that. You know, wait to do that. You know, let the parable kind of breathe and do its thing. And it's pretty incredible that a shepherd will do that. And you know, before before the cross was an image in in in, uh, in Christendom, the cross didn't become a a symbol until like 400. Did you know that? You now we got ichthuses and anchors, but no one no one it didn't occur to anybody to do it to do a cross, right? But one of the images, their favorite images in the catacombs, is a shepherd with a sheep over his shoulders. That was a real important image that they—they they were the one that he came back for, you know, left the 99. But yeah, absolutely, you're absolutely right. Yeah, he knows the 99 are safe. Yeah. He's not a bad shepherd. He's a good shepherd. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have a friend who was—he uh, was in Jordan, and he got caught out in a windstorm, some kind of really bad storm. And there was a shepherd in a tent. So the guy says, oh, come in you know, come here to me. And so the, and, uh, Gary Witherall is his name. Some of you may know Gary Witherall. His wife was murdered uh, by the Taliban. But um, he, uh, he's in the tent with the shepherd, and the sheep are outside making their noise. And every t- the shepherd knew the name of each sheep by its, by its sound. And he sat there. It was just so cool. Gary said he, he knew the name of every one of his sheep by the sound of their voices. And when the storm was over, he called, he literally, he called each sheep by name. Gary stood there and watched it. Yeah, yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah. Okay, we're uh, we're, we're off the tape. We've used it all up, but we'll take a few more questions, so go ahead. Um, I've heard this preached, and I've never heard it anywhere else, but it kind of made sense to me uh-huh. that whenever they chose Mattathias as the 12th disciple, Uh that, you know, they picked two, and then they rolled the dice. Right, uh uh-huh. But then along comes Paul. Right. Untimely born. Uh Uh-huh. But the point the pastor made was that, you know, they chose him, and you never hear anything else about him. Yeah. And and his point was probably it should have been Paul. Paul. They just kind of jumped the gun. Well, I mean, you know, that's a devotional thought. It's just not a very biblical thought. You can, I, that's a good idea. I'm not saying that's a bad idea. That's a good idea. But the, 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 the point is, I mean, the whole book of Acts is how messed up everybody is, right? <laughs> I, 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 almost everything they do is wrong, and they're they are arguing. You're right, they do wrong stuff all the time. I don't think it was wrong to, to appoint. They all got together and they say we need to have another somebody replace Judas, and they even quote a verse, right? <laughs> Let another one take his place. So they've got they got their Bible stuff all together, and even to roll the dice, that wasn't being in their world. That was not being careless. So they kind of did their due diligence, um, but to say they shouldn't have done that, they should have waited for Paul or something. You know, I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know either. Yeah, I just thought it was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'd say in general. What is it, Acts? Acts is the story, it's a bridge from the world of having one perfect leader to having a lot of really screwed up leaders, right? Including Paul. I mean, including all of them. I mean, look, he is so honest about how messed up these guys are. Paul doesn't want Bar- or Mark to go and Barnabas, you know, but, but it works out. The Holy Spirit does his thing and the church, church does its thing in spite of our... our uh, it wouldn't have been horrible if someone idiot had written Acts like all of those guys were Jesus. They were all, couldn't make a mistake. What a mess we'd be in now. So, um, so was that a mistake? I don't know. They made lots of mistakes. Maybe that was a mistake too. But uh, I, Paul never claims to be one of the 12. I mean, he claims to be an apostle because what is the mark of an apostle? You've seen Jesus. That's what it means to be an apostle in that age. And he says, oh, I'm an apostle. Yeah, I, I saw him. Um, but then interesting too that Paul never, well, one time, Paul doesn't refer to the historical Jesus ever, except once. He refers to the Lord's Supper one time. Otherwise, when Paul talks about Jesus, it's the present reality of Jesus. It's Jesus now, which is, I think, the unique thing that he brought to the table. Yeah, yeah.